0: I'm Jane. So, how's it going? Um, well, not great, but like, I mean, nothing bad has happened to me in the past two days, but there's just a lot going on, you know? Yeah, there is a lot going on. It requires serious attention. Yeah. And when it first began, I was kind of doing that thing where it's like, oh, that really overwhelms me. I'm just not going to pay attention. Right. But that's a thing that I have such a privilege to do. Right. And just is irresponsible of me to do. And I shouldn't be doing that because my, like, this subject deserves my attention and I should be contributing to help if I could, you know?
1: Definitely. I think, like, in this moment we're in, which, like, since the last time we recorded, George Floyd was murdered, and mm-hmm. then today there was the murder of Tony McDady Is that how you say their name? I don't know. And David McAddy, I mm-hmm. believe is how you say his last name. Three subsequent murders following still the murder of Ahmaud Arbery and mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. So, like, there are all these riots happening in Philadelphia, which we're very close to and I have an attachment to and New York city, um, which is obviously where we live Mm -hmm. at the moment, even though we're quarantining elsewhere, like it's really hard because like feed fatigue is definitely real. And I've seen a lot of posts about it because you can't get on social media without it, without it being the center focus as it should be. And I'm glad that the black lives matter movement is getting this momentum, you know, and I hope that it's not just, a that I'm seeing all of this because I happen to be connected to people that care about it. I have spoken to friends who have friends that know nothing about it and had no idea the riots were happening. Really? And I, yeah. And I said to... it's And it's people that we know, you know, mm-hmm. um, that are saying this. And I said to my friend, I was like, you need to tell your friend, that if they are not seeing this, then you need to be honest with them that they are not following the right people. You know, if the people they follow are not talking about it, mm-hmm. then it's her responsibility to find people that are.
0: I have seen it on the news, I feel like, a lot. But the news coverage that I've seen, I feel like has not been accurately portraying what's happening. Definitely. Definitely. It's making it seem like it's just like chaotic rioting for no reason. Yeah. And it's definitely more of a deep dive to find information from
1: firsthand accounts of protesters who were there on the ground, you know, Um, because certainly the media is perpetrating it in a specific way. And also you want to find and support organizations that are doing the groundwork and helping people who are... Or and or aiding the people that are doing the groundwork. Mm-hmm. So like I've donated to several bailout funds. I donated to um, David McAddy's GoFundMe that his I believe mother started, um, and various other sources that are out there. I do know that the Minnesota Freedom Fund has requested that people no longer donate to them because they have they've gotten a huge influx of donations, which is amazing, and they're encouraging people to find other places to donate that could also use the funds and it's the same with the brooklyn community fund i believe so if you are going out there to donate which i highly encourage make sure that the place that you are donating to has not posted somewhere like hey we have more than enough please donate elsewhere yeah um, especially if your funds are limited um that requires a little bit more research mm-hmm. in terms of who is still in need
0: well i think it's just standard practice that you should just do you know a, le- a little bit of research before you give money to an organization, right? For other reasons aside from them encouraging you to send your money elsewhere, but particularly in a situation like this, yeah, sending your money where it will be most helpful is really key.
1: Yeah, for sure. I hope if you are out there and you are protesting that you are taking safety precautions. There are there's a wealth of information out there about um, what you should bring and where to prepare yourself at a protest, especially to protest in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so definitely check out those resources yeah
0: and definitely don't just go out and protest without looking into what specifically the planned organized events of the black lives matter are right uh, they're despite how the media is covering it they they are organized mm-hmm. they're p- planned yeah. Yeah, they've done a lot of research and are organized in the best practices for how to go about this. And it just, I think, makes the most sense for all of us to be following the same plan rather than just like running out and doing whatever we can think of. Like, Make sure you're doing something that is actually helpful to the greater cause.
1: Definitely. And I don't want to discredit rioting as a form of protest. There are many examples in which rioting has been the deciding factor. For example, Stonewall, as we Ooh, talked Marsha about. Marsha P. Year. Johnson. Yes, Marsha P. Johnson, as we talked about last year on our Pride episode. Happy Pride. So I... I do think rioting has a place in the protests, but make sure that those riots are, again, following a plan. And just if you are a white person protesting, um, the best way to be an ally is to acknowledge that your actions, the consequences may fall on black and brown people Mm in those protests. So if you are going to start looting and burning things, you should be aware that that responsibility is going to fall and reflect Mm -hmm. on the black community, unfortunately, mm-hmm. because they're the ones that are more likely to be painted as the criminals or whatever in this yeah. situation. So something to keep in mind, but stay safe, um, you know, do your work, and we'll hopefully have updates in the future.
0: Hopefully. All right. Should we talk about education reform? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so you asked me about the SATs. hmm So I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of standardized testing first. So the earliest record of standardized testing comes from China, where in order to apply for a government job, they had to fill out uh, examinations that tested their knowledge Mm -hmm. on Confucian philosophy and poetry. Oh. In Western civilizations, examinations were usually essays, which come from the ancient Greek affinity for the Socratic method. Yeah. So way back before we had like questions where you were given multiple choice questions, the way to test somebody was to have them produce an essay for you. Mm-hmm. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, school-aged kids typically worked on farms or in factories. And if they were educated, they were mostly homeschooled. But after the Industrial Revolution and after the progressive movement of the early 1800s, more and more kids went to school and standardized test examinations emerged as a way to test the knowledge of many students at once. Okay. In 1905, French psychologist Alfred Binet created a test that would eventually be developed into the modern IQ test, which is called the Stanford Binet Intelligence Test, During World War I, Army recruits would undergo aptitude quizzes called Army Mental Tests to determine what type of job within the Army would be the best fit for them. Mm In 1936, the first automatic test scanner was invented that could grade tests for you by using a rudimentary computer's electrical current to detect marks that were made by a special type of pencil. Mm -hmm. This would go on to be the computer that we all know, which looks for lead from number two pencils. This started the also well-known way of testing, which is the bubbling in of okay. answers. Mm-hmm. In 1920, stick, 20 sticks, 20 sticks. <laughs> this year, 2026. <laughs> the Scholastic Aptitude Test, the SAT, was mm-hmm. created in 1926 by College Board, a nonprofit group of universities and other educational organizations. The original test was 90 minutes long, and it had 315 questions. Oh, my God. Testing knowledge of vocabulary and basic math, including blank analogies. For example, blue is to sky as blank is to grass. Oh, I feel
1: like I've seen those in, like, old movies, hot yeah. movies
0: before. Which the answer is green, by the way. (laughs) I still feel this like pressure to get it right. Right, right. you
1: have to answer the question. I feel that.
0: By the end of World War II, the test became a standard rite of passage for college-bound high school seniors, Mm -hmm. and remained largely unchanged until 2005, when the analogies were done away with and the writing section was added. Oh. -hmm. I I killed the writing section. I'm so (laughs) proud of it. I'm glad in 1959 the act was developed
1: mm-hmm. better
0: yeah it stood for american college testing it had a math section a reading and english section mm-hmm. and a science section
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it also included a section where you answer personal questions about yourself to help guide you to a potential future course of study oh so it had like an aptitude test. yeah That's and you cool. like oh like oh you like science be a scientist like right <laughs> I, like you were in a magazine. It's
1: thing. Like, yeah. If you like science, be a scientist.
0: <laughs> the ACT and the SAT both now have their own niche, sort of. The ACT is more commonly accepted by schools in the Midwest and the South, where coastal schools more often take the SAT oh, from their applicants. I took both. I did too. I didn't do as well at the ACT, but I think I did okay. But I did well on I the I did the much SATs. better on the ACT. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's funny because it's very common for students to be better at one than the other.
1: Oh, that makes sense
0: to me. The questions are phrased completely differently. Yeah. The SAT more tests your logic skills, while the ACT is more a test of accumulated knowledge, which... I think that also like kind of shows the difference in our way of thinking. Yeah.
1: I think I think I have logic, but the, Yeah,
0: not to be like oh, you're so illogical.
1: But I think the SAT I really struggled with because it was testing me on things that I hadn't learned in a classroom. Mm-hmm. So it was more about like just doing all these practice tests mm-hmm. whereas the ACT I was like applying learned yeah. things, which I think is a better I'm, I'm just better at in general. Mm-hmm.
0: When the tests were invented, they the SAT stood for the Scholastic Aptitude Test, and the ACT stood for the American College Testing. Mm-hmm. But now both of those acronyms have lost their meaning. They're literally just called the ACT and the SAT. They mm-hmm. don't technically mean anything anymore.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah, I thought so too. College Board also offers SAT two tests, which are geared toward individual subjects such as biology or geography. Yeah, I remember that. The, yeah, some of my friends took them. I didn't. Same. And then College Board also runs AP tests, which some universities and colleges use to let students opt out of introductory courses. Yeah. The PSAT was also added for high school juniors, which is meant to prepare them for the SAT and is also used to award national merit scholarships. In 2001, George Bush implemented No Child Left Behind, which expanded state-mandated standardized testing for students younger than high school as a means to assess school performance overall.
1: absolutely ridiculous. Yeah,
0: a lot of people don't like that. I hate Uh, it. It was met with much criticism. I remember my mother being furious, but at the same time, I, like, had to take the test still, so yeah. I was like, well, here I am.
1: <laughs> yeah. I took in bubbles.
0: so many standardized tests. So oh. many. What's the name of the one for, for Pennsylvania? PSSA. I'm trying to remember the one from Connecticut. Oh, and we had keynotes. We had two. I know in Maine, they're called the MEAs, but I wasn't that age when I lived in Maine. I was, it was like the C, the CMTs. Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: The, that con- like a the Connecticut
0: thing. Mastery Test. Yeah, it's all coming back to me now. Oh. I don't know what
1: PSSA stands for. It's like Pennsylvania state standardized assessment, i sure. Yeah. But then there was also the keynote assessment. Mm-hmm. And they were essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. So annoying. But yeah. PSSA I think was like for your district and keynote was for the state or something Interesting. like
0: that. Mm -hmm. Criticism of the SAT and the ACT and other standardized tests comes from the fact that people believe that those who are already privileged and advantaged in education have a huge leg up on Mm. the tests and college admissions in general. It's so true. As of 2014, signing up for the SAT alone costs $50 per test. Yeah. And you can apply for government aid to like cover that cost, but... It only, if you are awarded that based on your financial need by the government, it only covers the entrance fee for two tests. So you only have two shots at taking it. Whereas people who are more wealthy can take it as many times as they feel they need. It's typical for people to take it four or more times. I took it three, which my dad said was a good number. I only
1: took it once because I had a traumatic experience that I'm not going to go into, (laughs) which is how I ended up taking the ACT Mm. anyway. um, Plus I took the PSAT, but... Mm -hmm. It's true. Plus the SAT prep books it itself, one of those is twenty eight dollars yeah. easy.
0: Yeah. Parents who make more money tend to buy their children expensive practice test books, test prep classes, private tutors, and private college counselors to help prepare them. That was a big thing in high school. The prep classes. I my school didn't have any, but I specifically remember like a couple people during free periods, like a college student would come in and like tutor them. Yeah. On SAT prep in 2016 college board started publishing the essay for the test beforehand thinking that they could sort of eliminate some of the like inequality giving Mm -hmm. people like time to prepare but that enabled people to pay writing tutors to craft an essay for them and then they would just like memorize all of the stuff that the person told them to put in their essay and they would go in and do that so college board claims that they're still working on ways to change the test so that it's less coachable Mm -hmm. and more difficult to cheat and more so that it's truly neutral like everyone walking in has the same exact opportunity to do well but critics say that no matter how they change it private test prep agencies will come up with ways for people to pay them for to teach their methods on how to like do better at the test mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and will therefore have the same exact advantage in preparation as before mm-hmm. also in general i just think students who grow who come from more wealthy families have more free time to study and prepare
1: they are less likely to have to have a part-time job that's definitely a big part of it
0: and, and people who i just feel like come from advantage like just in general have less to worry about when they're in high school I'm not trying to say that people who or wealthy don't have any difficulties in their lives but I right. think when you're a wealthy high schooler like you just have more right your concerns freedom. are
1: extracurricular yeah, exactly. things like that you have more time to dedicate to things like SAT prep where yeah, people from family, yeah don't people don't from economically disadvantaged families and or families where they have a parent with a medical problem something yeah. like that they just have different concerns to worry about yeah. in which school and education might take a back burner for that reason
0: mm. There are other ways that minorities are also disadvantaged when taking the SAT. At the start of the test, you are required to bubble in your sex and your race. Mm-hmm. And studies have shown that the very act of having to like self-identify, if you are a person who are, is of an identity that is associated with a negative stereotype, just the act of filling it in will remind you of that and it will remind you about what you're up against and that doesn't surprise me it will remind you that it'll like, give you worries it'll that you your out, test yeah. is going to be judged differently than other people's tests mm-hmm. and it increases test anxiety mm-hmm. and hurts your chances of doing well. So standardized tests are not totally the best No, thing I, in the world. I
1: remember learning about this in my freshman year of college and talking about the... Biases in standardized tests against mm-hmm. minorities. Yeah. In um, the questions and the phrasing and things like that. Yeah.
0: Even. I remember when I first started taking standardized tests and all of the names were like not super diverse, and you could tell the active attempts to increase diversity in the questions, but it was mm-hmm. really just they increased more like quote unquote ethnic sounding names. Yeah. But it was still similarly worded questions that didn't really change anything. So GPA is considered to actually be a better measure of student success. There was a study published on the National Association for College Admissions Counseling website that found that students that had higher GPAs but low SAT scores fared better in college than students who had higher SAT scores and weaker GPAs. Also, admissions officers have the ability to look at your GPA next to statistics such as your class size, your average school GPA, and Mm -hmm. facts about your school and its record and, like, the types of students that are in your school and, like, what types of backgrounds they come from. Mm -hmm. It just gives them a more contextual look at the scores that are at the Yeah, especially
1: because GPA is something that's calculated over time, whereas SAT is something that's calculated one test in one minute. That's what drove me so nuts about it. Yeah. Was like, I had an amazing JPA and a really good class rank, and all the colleges mm-hmm. wanted to know was my SAT score slash ACT score. And I was like, I am such a good student, and I was ter- I'm a terrible mm-hmm. standardized test taker. Yeah. It's very, and it's very frustrating, you know, and I understand why minority and disadvantaged communities like would be frustrated because it's this like glimpse of them that mm-hmm. they, does not represent them as a person or them as a whole, you know.
0: Yeah. Totally. Admissions officers also think that extracurricular activities play a role in demonstrating the intangible qualities mm-hmm. that a, a test score couldn't show you, such as leadership, innovation, a desire to change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, if you look at, if, like, if you look at a school like Stanford, which has an application pool of forty thousand or more, five percent of that, two thousand applications, have SAT scores that are in the 2200 to 2400 range so those candidates still have to prove to the admissions officer that they have exceptional qualities other than their sat scores right so in general like less and less admissions officers are placing a lot of value in sat scores lately one quote from this uh article i read in the stanford like university newspaper by the spotlight um, Kelsey Page in 2014. She wrote, without SAT scores, higher education could return its focus on identifying true, deep, and brilliant thinkers and developing them to their fullest potential instead of rewarding the most excellent sheep. Mm. Which I thought was deep. Yeah. So the reason why you asked me about all of this was on May 21st, the New York Times reported that the University of California will end use of SATs and ACTs in admissions. Uh, I got all of this information from an article by sean hubler from the new york times okay so the change is expected to accelerate the momentum of american colleges away from the tests Mm -hmm. particularly amid concerns that they are unfair to poor black and hispanic students yeah the university of california has 10 schools in its system which includes some of the nation's most popular schools which includes ucla and uc berkeley this decision follows many small liberal arts colleges making similar decisions yeah i was gonna
1: say Mm -hmm. yeah they very it's it's very common amongst liberal arts colleges mm -hmm. Not very common, but Mm -hmm. common enough
0: that they don't take Mm -hmm. SATs and ACTs. Mm -hmm. But this decision comes at the same time that the company ACT and College Board, who does the SAT, Mm -hmm. they took major financial hits this year because of the coronavirus. Right. But College Board lost an estimated $45 million in revenue just this spring because of test date cancellations due to the coronavirus pandemic. Right. Well, they also, like, it's not just SAT
1: and ACT. They do the APs and they do all of the advanced, a lot of the advanced degree tests, too, like Mm -hmm. GRE, MCAT, Mm -hmm. the LSATs. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a whole thing.
0: Yeah. Many students will likely continue to take the test, like, in the immediate future just Mm -hmm. because there are still schools out there that require it and including highly competitive schools such as the Ivy League. Right. So it was still like The industry of, like, giving the SAT, college board's not going anywhere anytime soon. It's just going to not make as much money. Definitely. That being said, this decision by California could tip the balance for other schools and encourage them to follow. Mm -hmm. The senior vice president at the American Council on Education said, whatever the University of California does will have ripple effects across American higher education, particularly at leading public universities. Many colleges nationwide, including University of California, has made the SAT and the ACT optional for this year's applicants already as so many testing dates were disrupted by the pandemic. So this year's applicants didn't need them. Both SAT and ACT have announced that they will introduce an online testing option for the first time this fall. I can't see that working particularly well.
1: Yeah, I can't either. The
0: plan, which was approved unanimously, by the board that voted on it, is to continue the optional test taking for another year, and then have a two-year period where standardized test scores can be used to award scholarship, determine course placement, and assess out-of-state students, and then by 2025, all consideration of test scores will be eliminated. Throughout this time, the university will do a study on the feasibility of creating its own admissions test, perhaps in collaboration with other California schools college board responded to that idea and said that if university of california schools have an entrance exam for their school in place of the sat students are still going to be taking the sat and that will just only add to the academic burden that students already face or it will force them to limit their college choice choices Mm -hmm. so college board is basically like how dare you make high school student's life already like which is already hard even harder <laughs> and you're just gonna lose applicants. Like, I don't think that's Yeah true. I, I agree. Especially
1: considering that there is such a draw to liberal arts colleges because they don't require the SAT and mm-hmm. the ACT. I know that was a really huge factor for me and several other of my friends that ended mm-hmm. up attending liberal arts colleges yeah. because they and I felt like they could present themselves as a stronger applicant mm-hmm. with an essay which is normally the replacement like some sort of personal essay or following a prompt than from a standardized test score. And I think that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm.
0: University of California schools have 300,000 students and six of its schools are very high on the like ranking of American schools with the most applicants. Mm -hmm. 80% of University of California applicants take the SAT, which provides College Board with its Largest source of customers. Okay. It provides College Board with $1 billion per year. (gasps) Just students applying to University of California schools.
1: That's insane.
0: So you can see why College Board doesn't want them to do this.
1: Imagine if SUNY started doing it. I feel like it's got to be the University of California Um, schools and SUNY has got to be the second biggest one. Maybe. Yeah. Or or maybe not even the second biggest, but like the second or third, you Mm -hmm. know.
0: After last year's college admissions scandal, many universities decided to review their admissions process Mm -hmm. and more than... 1,230 schools have decided to make the SAT and ACT optional for admission. And another smaller group of schools is part of a push to end testing requirements altogether, including Smith, Pitzer, and Sarah Lawrence, which that doesn't surprise me coming from Sarah Lawrence. No, doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, I'm surprised Sarah Lawrence still required it. Yeah. Um, No, I'm pretty sure they're definitely one of the schools that's getting rid of it, but that group of schools just is part of a larger fight to like try and convince other schools to also not do it. Right. Mm -hmm. The University of California system faculty had previously run a faculty task force to study the impact of standardized tests, and they found that SAT and ACT scores were a more effective means to predict college success within the University of California system than high school grades or other measures. So they recommended against doing away with the SAT and the ACT, but (laughs) <laughs> the board that was voting on it just didn't take their advice. Oh, so but that seems like BS. I agree. Well, I think that they're saying like, oh, if you do well on this test, you'll do well at our school and you'll have a higher chance of graduation. I think there's just like a similar factors like correlating or however mm-hmm. you say it statistically. I think it just based on everything I've learned about these tests, like people who are disadvantaged towards taking this test are not going to do as well on the test, and then also will have a harder time finishing college. So I don't think you should be like, oh, people who aren't doing as well on this test shouldn't be in our university. I feel like it should be... How do we help those who are disadvantaged in these areas yeah, absolutely. to do to have a more successful experience yeah. in the university? Yeah,
1: that makes perfect sense.
0: Supporters of the standardized tests say that they provide an important way to measure and compare student success across disparate schools, districts, and states so they can see like what's really going on in the in the American education system and yeah. where does it what schools need help? How do we help them? Mm-hmm. But I really don't think that's how the situation is being responded to. We're not no. looking at schools that have lower scores and being like, let's help them. No, not at all. In fact, it's a way to allocate government funding. Yeah. College Board and ACT insist that inequalities in their test results reflect existing gaps in the American educational system, and they are simply a means of collecting that information. They're not the cause. And I don't think they're the cause. I just think, I think in this regard, they're right, but I think it says something, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. In response to criticism that the SAT unfairly favored privileged white students, College Board proposed a new grading system called the Adversity Score, which would put each test taker's results in the context of that student's school or neighborhood. So they would literally get a numerical value to, like, put next to their scores to be like, this is how hard their life is. And critics were basically, like, That's dumb. Mm -hmm. Like there's no way to give a numeric value to the hardships of someone's life. That's true. That doesn't make any sense. And it also wouldn't even take in like factors of their personal lives. Mm -hmm. It would just be like, what school district do they come from? What's their economic background like? Yeah. So uh, that plan was scrapped. Two years ago, the University of Chicago went test optional. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: the first entering freshman class had 25% more first-generation and low-income students, and 56% more rural students than the previous year. Oh. And that was only with 10% of students opting out of submitting test scores.
1: Oh, wow. If That's they, a lot of progress. I know. Yeah. From a very small pool of change. Exactly. Seemingly. Yeah.
0: In the UC system, standardized test scores are just one component of a complex admissions formula with more than a dozen metrics, including high school GPA, Uh, in fact the state guarantees acceptance to the top 12.5 percent of california high school students Mm -hmm. california schools have struggled to maintain diversity since voters in the state passed a 1996 ban on affirmative action and there's been a lot of pressure for them to change that for them to increase diversity on their campuses Mm -hmm. it's top campuses have become almost as difficult to get into as some ivy league schools just because there's so many applicants Mm -hmm. but demographically their campuses are dominated by white and asian students those are the two largest groups yeah which doesn't make any sense because the largest group in california in california is hispanic people so is that specific to southern california has a
1: big hispanic population or is that because I, from I, what I know about California, Northern California has a very large Asian population mm. and Southern California has a very large um, Hispanic population, but I don't know if that's more evenly distributed than I think.
0: Well, um, according to this article, even though the state population is 6.5% African-American, University of California schools are less than 4% Black on their campuses. Oh, wow. And California's largest largest ethnic group i think statewide is hispanic people which is 40%. Oh wow. Uh, it probably is more densely populated with those people in the south but right. i think statewide i think averagely
1: yeah
0: it, it comes out to 40%. But despite them being 40% of the population, only 22% of the students in university of california schools are hispanic. Interesting. Carol Christ, who is the Berkeley chancellor, said that standardized testing is a biased instrument that would only become more skewed in the wake of the pandemic. And I agree with her. I very much agree with her. (laughs) So that is everything on a standardized test.
1: Juicy.
0: Yeah. Thank you.
1: I wonder, do you know if just because like there is a possibility that people are leaving California to go to schools out of state, out of state is still very much a thing but are the statistics of white students compared to the white population like are they in line oh i don't know because i'm wondering like does it mean i'm sure i know that fewer black and hispanic people go to college than white 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 people so i know that's a fact but i'm wondering if maybe although probably not because in general, white students are more likely to go out of state because they're more likely to be able to afford out-of-state tuition. Yeah. So never mind.
0: <laughs> just answered your own question. We yeah. got there. Yeah.
1: No, I'm just going to go ahead and It was assume. an interesting
0: thought process. Yeah, no, I'm just going to go ahead
1: and assume that it's because of the lack of access to education mm-hmm. for those communities as opposed to
0: a desire to leave the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like when you're talking about like East Coast schools or California schools, particularly because California dominates the coast so much geographically mm-hmm. on that side of the country. Mm-hmm. Like the decision to leave the state, like what are you going to go to like schools in the Midwest? So Like I feel like the place to go, not to be like the schools in the Midwest and the South are terrible, but I feel like the next choice would be to go to like an East Coast school, yeah. which I mean, is like harder universities to get to. are
1: more densely populated on the coasts than they are in the middle of the country.
0: Yeah. And I remember, like, even at our college, like, don't come for me, friends who were from California. But all of the f- people who I knew who were from California were wealthy. Yeah, because it, it just it costs more money to fly across the country as Absolutely. much as you have to do in order. To and attend on top of school. that,
1: everybody I knew from California, it was either they were going to go to a California school or they were going to a liberal arts east coast mm-hmm. college.
0: Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, so I am on the middle segment today, and I want to talk about. <laughs> I'm excited. This topic that I saw in a YouTube video last night, and then I saw in a couple of thumbnails of YouTube videos today, and I just think it's fascinating. And I was very confused about this topic, and having it explained to me was so helpful. Pretty much all of the information I'm going to say today is from the YouTube video. We have to talk about Quibi by the YouTube channel. Oh. Some more news. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: boy! So Isn't I it with the new show with Anna Kendrick. No, that's. HBO Max as a new Anna Kendrick show. Mm. Quibi has the Chrissy Teigen
0: show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's a mess. Oh yes, I I uh, I love messiness. There's okay. so much going on with Quibi. Okay, yes. so Quibi is a subscription-based streaming flat platform. Platform <laughs> on it, mm. not ABC Family anymore. Platform. Free <laughs> <It's> Freeform. <laughs> exactly. No, jumped Qu- in that joke did not land. <laughs> you did it? I thought it was hilarious. Okay. Quibi is a subscription-based streaming platform mm-hmm. designed to deliver short-form scripted and unscripted content to your cell phone. Oh, it's only on your cell phone. It's only on your cell phone. The name what? <laughs> exactly. Who well, watches TV only on their cell phone? Exactly. <laughs> is it supposed to be like for people that commute on public transportation? Uh- Yeah, I think uh, the name Quibi comes from a mashup of the words quick and bites. So it's supposed to be like short. (laughs) Sarah's shaking her head. That's dumb. (laughs) I'm going to say it. It's dumb. (laughs) Here we go. Quibi episodes run seven to ten minutes in length. I knew this. I did know that they're like all crazy short. Yeah. It's an app that you can download from the App Store or from the Google Play Store if you have a Samsung device. It's made by Jeffrey Katzenberg, who used to be the chairman of Walt Disney Studios before he left to be the co-founder and CEO of DreamWorks. And Meg Whitman... <laughs>
1: <laughs> did not know that happened. It
0: did. He was a real bigwig at Disney. He was the guy in charge when during the Disney Renaissance, when they made Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast... Lion saying, yeah. King, Aladdin. Yeah. All of the like movies oh, that are considered honest. Disney's like most successful, he was the chairman at the time. And then he turned around and went to Dreamworks yes, and literally. Made Shrek. He did though. <laughs> now it all it's all coming yes. together. It's all coming together. Yes. And it's the person who's also making it is Meg Whitman who used to run eBay and Hewlett Packard and she is also a big name at Dreamworks. Okay. <laughs> When's the last time that was a huge DreamWorks success? Is, Troll dream, is Trolls DreamWorks? It might be. If you knock Troll, <laughs> you can get the hell out of my house. No, but, like, my point is that both of these people, uh, neither, I don't think any of them, either of them, are doing anything big at DreamWorks at the moment. Right. But, like, they are worse. DreamWorks did do Trolls. Okay. Well, Beautiful they, film. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman were both very successful studio execs for DreamWorks back in the like 80s and 90s they haven't done any huge they haven't participated in the success of any Mm -hmm. dreamworks film really since then his last big hit was shrek and his career hasn't really done anything (laughs) major since then bless (laughs) (laughs) he was a big promoter of 3d movies and spoke very openly about how he thought that that was the future of cinema he said in the future every person in america would own their own personal 3d glasses and we would just call them movie glasses. So like every single movie would be 3D and, or, and we'd be like, all right, time to watch a movie. Put on your movie glasses. No, that sounds
1: absolutely terrible. It didn't happen.
0: Thank um, <laughs> God, because it sounds terrible. Yeah. In 2008, when Netflix was about to be launched and sites like Hulu were being made, younger people in the entertainment industry were correctly predicting that personal streaming was going to be the future. That was where the industry was going. But older studio execs like Katzenberg ignored them and kept ranting about 3D like that would be the big thing. And then 3D wasn't the big thing and streaming was and they looked like idiots. And the Hollywood industry was blindsided and had to take many steps to catch up to the success of Netflix and Amazon. Prime because it became the preferred platform for consuming media. People were really confused when Quibi was announced because there's already a really saturated market of streaming platforms, so it didn't make any sense to start a new one that had zero established brands to like connected with it. Like obviously Disney Plus had all the Disney movies. I feel like when you hear of a new streaming platform coming out, they'll be like, "Well, we're coming and we have Star Wars." Or right, I mean Disney Plus. Right, I mean HBO Max is
1: one of their big selling points is Harry Potter and Studio Ghibli. Yeah, like you bring
0: something with it that people know they like. Will attract them to mm-hmm. Quibi has no like known things that could pull people in,
1: right? Because nobody's making seven to ten yeah. minute media, exactly. <laughs> the big thing they use to market that's it. not true. Netflix did do one anthology series where all the episodes oh, were set like- to like 20 minutes, and they were it was really good, but Netflix mm. made it after many years of successful television. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i have a point but i'll get to it in a minute Ooh, um, okay. <laughs> the big thing that they use to market it is that quibi is not for your television it is for your phone you cannot watch it on your computer or television that just seems silly only on your phone i think it's fine to
1: be like it's idealized for your phone it's idealized for commuters that's fine but to make it inaccessible in any mm-hmm. other way i don't
0: think that's helping anybody yeah. Well, the issue is that people use their phone for other things. If you have seven to ten minutes to spare, you're going to be on social media. You're going to be talking to someone. You're going to be playing a game. All things you cannot do while watching something on Quibi. Right. Quibi says that you can use it to fill the small in-between moments of every day, such as while you're waiting in line or on the bus or settling down to bed. But (laughs) Studies show that every American nearly every american uses their phone while they watch tv right so taking the ability to do that away is not going to attract people yeah it's true it's very true Mm -hmm. this kind of lack of understanding of how people use their phones could only be reached by someone who is old and out of touch and does not understand (laughs) how people are consuming media it's
1: true it's so true
0: it is doing terribly in the app store. Uh, <laughs> sales have plummeted despite there being a huge anticipation. I feel like I saw so many ads for it. Even yeah, I don't, it didn't understand what it was. Right. Um, can you use it on iPads? I don't know. That's the only way I could see it being successful is if you could I use it on don't an iPad. Think so. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to download it on my iPad later. It might cost money. I think that I think you can download the app for free, but the subscription costs money.
1: Oh, maybe there's a free trial.
0: Maybe I don't know. I'm not
1: gonna watch anything on it. I'm,
0: in I'm going to look up the lineup. <laughs> we'll get there. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> so Quibi also makes its content screenshot proof. <gasps> so people can't steal their property because that the thing about the people who made Quibi is that they don't like streaming platforms because they think people can very easily pirate things and share them, which is not as, as big an issue as it was predicted to be yeah. before it came out. People were always pirating things. Yes. And also, the way that shows get popular is people, like, make memes of them and spread them around and share sure. them with their friends. Tumblr, huge. <laughs> but you can't do that with Quibi. They spent $1.7 billion to make Quibi, and it is not making money at all. Oh my God. They And also, they clearly didn't spend any of that $1.7 billion on marketing because no one understands what it is or how it works and they can't share content from it because it's screenshot proof. So you, we can't do the advertising for you. It's It's, true. People usually like streaming platforms because there's so much content to consume and we like to watch it on our TV. Mm -hmm. We're used to that shape. Like it's, we like it to be big and Quibi is making a big deal about how you can watch their content in both landscape and portrait mode or portrait. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. But if you go into portrait mode, it cuts off half the picture. It's not enough to miss the vital details. Like, you're still watching the thing. Yeah. But I I have two things about it. If the details, when you're not in portrait mode, are so insignificant that it doesn't matter to have them, then, like, why have them at all? And right. also, why would I want it to be that small? And like, Yeah, I don't want to watch something in portrait well, mode. It's like watching a TikTok. Like, all the TikToks are in portrait I mode. guess that's true, but that's, like, a TikTok. It's a five-second video. It's not... An episode. An episode. Yeah. <sighs> Is the content good? It could be. <laughs> they made deals with Steven Spielberg, Guillermo del Toro, Kevin Hart, Jennifer Lopez, Chrissy Teigen, Queen Latifah, Tom Cruise, Sam Raimi, and Ridley Scott, Reese Witherspoon, and more. Okay. All people... Mostly people that I like. But again... Quibi isn't making movies. They are making 7 to 10 minute shorts. But the thing is, they are technically making movies, but they only let you watch them in 7 to 10 minute segments that they only release once a day. What? So if you wanted to watch a movie on Quibi, you could only watch 7 to 10 minutes of it a day.
1: Even like this is this is new movies that they're making, right? So they're made for the seven to ten minutes, not like they released Jaws, but you can only watch ten minutes of it a day.
0: I, I think they're they're saying that it's the former, but people are saying it's the latter. Like, the big thing they've made so far is uh, The Most Dangerous Game, mm-hmm. and people are saying that if you put it all together, it's actually a really good movie, is the thing, but you can't tell in seven to ten minute segments. Yeah, that's based off of the short the, story, right? It's based on a book, and I, I don't, there might have been a movie already, but it, it's a remake. Yeah. Um, yeah, The Most Dangerous Game is, yeah. the,
1: yes, there was a 1932 movie, The Most Dangerous Game, the short story yeah. by Richard Connell. yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. And also, their quote-unquote new content... And it stars Liam Hemsworth. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Well, their new content so far is all things that seem to be marketed towards older generations, such as a remake of the most dangerous game is a thing that like baby boomers know about they're the people right. that read that book they're the people that saw that movie right like they're I'm mean, not that baby boomers were born in the 30s but you know right. it's a thing old people like I'm sorry old people but you do I mean yeah um, it was first published in nineteen. and uh, another big thing they're talking about is a remake of The Fugitive starring Kiefer Sutherland oh two okay, things cool <laughs> My point is that it's things old people like, Sarah. <laughs> I like The Fugitive. The Fugitive's a really good movie. Quibi released The Most Dangerous Game on YouTube because no one was watching it on Quibi. Literally no one. And they were like, we need someone to see that our content is good. So they released a couple episodes on YouTube. is which-
1: so funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at The Most Dangerous Game page mm-hmm. on the Quibi website, which you can look at, but you can't watch anything. Um, and it's 15 episodes. Of the most, which like makes sense if they're 10 Mm -hmm. minutes each. It's what, 150 minutes? Yeah. Two hour movie? Makes sense.
0: (laughs) Also, they're letting the creators of their content maintain ownership so that they could take their content to a different streaming platform if they choose, which means Quibi won't make money from that. Like all of their business decisions just make no no sense. sense, All of my bullet points at this point start with also because I was like, also! Like... (laughs) (laughs) Quibi is already under fire because they made a show called Memory Hole where host Will Arnett watches vintage funny home videos and makes fun of them. It has the exact same title, premise, and graphic design theme, very similar, to a popular YouTube series that already existed. And oh, Quibi shit. is denying any connections and blocking anyone on social media who accuses them of anything or oh, points shit. out any similarities. <gasps> Quibi. Quibi is also, like, dealing with a legal thing right now, which I have to be very careful because apparently, like, I could get sued. We won't, though. (laughs) Um, just If we mention that they are currently, like, they potentially might have stolen technology from somebody else. But, again, that has not been proven. We don't know it legally. Um, It's just theory. Don't come for me. Also, (laughs) breaking up the content into small bits Allows them to use a loophole in union contracts because it's technically not a feature-length production, yeah. so that they can pay their actors and crew a lot less money oh, for creating the same amount of content and putting in the same amount of work. That's so sad. I know. Uh, like, that's I so cool. I know. And some of their content is bad. One of their shows is called Murder House Flip, and the premise of it is that they fix up and makeover houses houses where someone was murdered in. Yes. it. I heard about this. Yes. <laughs> The first episode features a house where a 10-year-old girl was shot to death by her father.
1: Yeah.
0: It's like that's terrible. so insensitive. It's terrible. There's also a show that a lot of people are making fun of on TikTok called Golden Arm, which <laughs> stars Emmy Winner Rachel Brosnahan as a woman who uh, like got a prosthetic arm that was made of gold and she becomes obsessed with it and it ruins her life and literally starts killing her like she gets this rare disease caused by the gold but she refuses to remove it and refuses to accept a prosthetic arm that's not made of gold what that's the entire premise of the show and it's apparently supposed to be like a spin on a folktale like there's some old folktale that's about um a married couple and the mm-hmm. wife gets a golden prosthetic arm and it's about the husband coveting the arm and trying to steal it from her because he wants the money. Yeah. So the creator of this show was like, let's put like a gender bent twist on it. Also, it's made by a man. Um, (laughs) Where she's the one who covets the gold, even though it's her own arm. It's her own arm. And (laughs) there's apparently a scene where she's like lying in the hospital dying because of this golden arm and her husband is begging her to not do this. And her last like wish that she says is that she's like, She was like, "You better bury me with my arm, with my golden arm." And her husband's like, I, "Okay." And she's like, "You have to promise me use your words." Like he makes, she makes him say, "I promise, I will bury you with your golden arm." Oh my god! It's, and everyone's like, "This is the dumbest thing." That's in. Uh, apparently, ah. <laughs> it apparently is really cringy to watch. Yeah, it sounds like it would be, which uh, is terrible because Rachel Brosnahan
1: is a very talented actress.
0: <laughs> in the New York Times, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Blamed the pandemic for Quibi's failure as an app, he said, "I attribute everything that's gone wrong to the coronavirus. Everything." <laughs> <laughs> but that makes no sense because.
1: He- <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm- no, it's ridiculous. <laughs> just like,
0: do you know what's going on in the world right like, the room, bro. Read the room. <laughs> It makes absolutely no sense because people who are quarantined are spending more time than ever on their screens. And apps like TikTok are more successful than ever Uh, and are getting downloaded by, like, every single person on the planet. It's true. Now, the person who was interviewing him pointed that out to him. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) And told him, like, why do you think apps like TikTok are more successful than ever? And (laughs) Jeffrey Katzenberg responded by saying, that's like comparing apples to submarines. (laughs) (laughs) and he went on this long rant about how that had nothing to do with him and he concluded it with i'm happy for them but what the hell does that have to do with me again 1.8 billion dollars lost right (sighs) you're
1: really worked up about the
0: overall point (laughs) is just that this old out of touch exec who doesn't know what he's doing thinks he understands what us young millennials want because again this is an app marketed towards millennials right? and it's doing terribly because he doesn't understand us and he doesn't understand how apps work and technology works or phone use works he does not and it's kind of you know um, maybe a metaphor for what's going on in our world Um, Um, maybe just maybe yeah so that's everything on Quibi. Woo!
1: <laughs> that was a wild ride, I have to say. I did not, I knew that it was happening, and I did not know it was burning like this. It was just a A lot of people are, like,
0: attacking it on YouTube right now because it was just such a dumb thing that happened. And I'm sure a year from now, no one will even remember Quibi, but, like, the first thing I knew about Quibi is all of those commercials that I saw with Sophie... Her? Yeah, Sophie Turner. She was, she was in a Quibi show, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah, 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 And I want good things for her.
1: <laughs> I know. <sighs> me too. <laughs> Insane. That was juicy, I have to say. That was like a nice, they gave me a nice laugh there. Really I'm needed glad. That. I'm glad. Really needed that. Um, Let's talk about something that's not a laugh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I forgot. Okay. <laughs> I requested this, and it was interesting. I enjoyed it. Um, I just love, I love history. Just you know, really uh-huh. grinds my gears, or not grinds my gears, oils my gears.
0: <laughs> Lubricate something. <them>. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Today we are going to talk about Australia as a penal colony. If you did not know, between 1788 and 1868, 162,000, thousand convicts were transported from britain and ireland to the penal colonies in australia this practice had originally started with the american colonies in the early 17th century but ended abruptly at the start of the american revolution unsurprisingly in 1770 just a few years before the revolution james cook chartered and claimed possession of the east coast of australia for britain
0: james cook that name's familiar Mm -hmm. yeah
1: he's a big guy
0: yeah <laughs> a large man yeah, and, uh, no he's very famous <laughs> okay
1: suspicious that the French colonial empire would soon follow suit. Britain chose Australia as the site of their new penal colony so instead of just being like it's our colony they're like and we'll send convicts there um, <laughs> because they assumed correctly that the French would not want to colonize a place filled with criminals. In 1787, the first fleet, which is what the the official title of this first group of ships, departed Portsmouth, England, and arrived on January 20th, 1788, to found Sydney, New South Wales. The full trip of eleven ships, including six filled with convicts, took 250 days, eight months. Mm-hmm. The convicts were chained below deck for the entire eighth month, eight month voyage. Nearly ten percent of the prisoners on the first voyage died, and this ended up being a good statistics because on later trips, up to one
0: third of the passengers died.
1: So you know, bad
0: conditions. For all. <laughs> Not an easy voyage.
1: No, and the ironic part is that you were transportation was considered like the better punishment because it happened if you avoided the death penalty, but then a lot of them died anyway. Very sad. This fleet was commanded by, this first fleet was commanded by Captain Arthur Phillip. His decision to anchor in Sydney Cove marked the beginning of British settlement in Australia and is celebrated on Australia Day every year. Future penal colonies were established in Van Diemen's land, which is now Tasmania, and Queensland. Mm -hmm. Western Australia, South Australia, and Victoria were established as free colonies where settlers just came to
0: Oh, my God. Victoria's named for Queen Victoria, isn't it? Yeah. Duh. <laughs> Sometimes you just realize things and you're like, that's the most obvious thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but
1: they were free colonies. They were not penal mm-hmm. colonies. Penal transportation to, I'm saying penal a lot, and I don't, I don't <laughs> love it, to Australia peaked in the 1830s and then dropped off significantly following protests against the convict system, which I'll talk about later. The last convict ship arrived in Western Australia in 1868 most convicts were transported for petty crimes and one in seven were women political prisoners were the most famous convicts once emancipated, most ex-convicts stayed in Australia and joined the Free Settlers. Most of the time because it was a very difficult voyage back to England. Mm-hmm. And they, at that point, were like, I guess I'll just live here. The most common sentence was for seven years of hard labor. Quote I unquote. just
0: can't picture Like, there's no geographic route by, to get to, from England to Australia by water that's not so, so long.
1: Right. That's why it took eight months. Do you want to know the route they took?
0: I, did they go I, around I Africa you. or did they go around north america
1: (laughs) they went around africa but they stopped in rio de janeiro
0: so they would go they wait all the way across the rio
1: de janeiro is on the was on the west or is on the east coast of south america so they would fly they
0: would would, would come all the way across the no we're going from england England is on the it's on the other side of the pond, Sarah. No, <laughs> Rio listen. is on this side of the pond. Yes, they would go southwest to Rio, stop in Rio,
1: then head directly east to like they'd stop in South Africa. Uh-huh, and then from down. South Africa, they would head southeast to Australia.
0: Uh, okay. That seems like they a,
1: didn't go down the side of Europe. It seems like out
0: of their way. But. No, they did
1: not go down the side of Europe, but they stopped in Rio.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. I can accept that. I don't like it, but I can accept that. Because
1: they're... First of all, they were at Where war in Africa, with a lot of places. Stop? Yeah. Right. <laughs> they were at war with a lot of places in Europe, and a lot of those places in Europe had colonized Africa. Mm-hmm. But I think they... I don't think they ever colonized um, Brazil, but they were able to stop there mm-hmm. in Rio. So who knows? But that that was their route, which is why it took 250 days. Um. Where was I? Just
0: like this quarantine. It's true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Once emancipated, like I said, most convicts would stay in Australia. Although convicts often faced social isolation at the time because they were criminals, um, now it is actually considered an honor for an Australian to discover their roots in Australia Started with a transported convict. About 20% of modern Australians are descendants of a convict, and it's like a great source of pride for them. <laughs> because, again, the only, the main reason is because none of the transported convicts were had committed a Mm -hmm. violent crime. They all were petty crimes. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't like, hey, cool, my grandfather was a murderer. It was like, my grandfather stole a piece of bread and he ended up being transported and that's how I got to Australia. Sick is
0: reference. But actually, (laughs) that happened
1: a lot. (laughs) Um, So it's a source of, it's a source of great pride. Why transport convicts? Well, at the start of the 18th century, the population of England and Wales had reached 6 million people. In 1740, that number began to rise rapidly, and by the American Revolution, the country was overcrowded. Poverty, unemployment, child labor, which, like, it's interesting that unemployment and child labor are next to each other, but it was a problem.
0: Um, yeah, and- wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was- Why are they putting the adults out of work and making the Because you got to pay them less. Yeah. Yeah. And they're because or you can pay them less, not you gotta. <laughs> you gotta pay them less. You're a child, I'm not allowed to give you more than ten dollars. Hot
1: take from like anybody made ten dollars. I meant take. like for
0: like a month.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. No. Um well because of the Industrial Revolution, children were in high demand because they had small fingers for factory work. Same with women that were better um as opposed we to are. like I'm they, Sorry. as opposed to men like a lot of the a lot of their former jobs were replaced by heavy machinery. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So all of those problems, plus poor living conditions, were prevalent, um, which was illustrated in the work of Charles Dickens. British cities did not have police forces, which, (laughs) lucky them. Um, So nearly all (laughs) criminals were caught by informers or their victims. They would (gasps) just go to the government and be like, that guy stole from me. Or they'd be like, my neighbor said that they robbed a place. Like, that was just how they caught criminals. That's not a good system. <laughs> like, that's just how it worked. I, know, I don't really know anything about pre-police in mm-hmm. England. Uh, but I know there were, like, detectives and private eyes and stuff uh-huh. like that. But not a system of police criminal justice.
0: Uh-huh. And what year did snitches get stitches come around? <laughs> From the Our beginning. national no snitching policy. <laughs>
1: I, like, totally butchered this sentence. Okay. In Welcome this, to my life. I'm like,
0: that's not even Do you ever work. wonder as an adult if you were never diagnosed with it, with dyslexia? <laughs> I do. I a lot. I don't think
1: I I just think I just typed too fast and I missed several. <laughs> in the 1770s, there were 222 crimes in Britain that carried the death penalty, which is <gasps> too many. And almost all of them were crimes against property. The Industrial Revolution had also led to an increase in petty crime. Mm-hmm. The accepted wisdom of the upper and ruling classes at the time was that criminals were inherently defective. Therefore, they could not be rehabilitated, and so they needed to be removed from society. Now, originally the answer was prison, but then prisons became overcrowded and very expensive to maintain. Uh-huh. There was also, at the same time, a shortage of people willing to go to Australia, which they were trying to colonize, because of the number of venomous and dangerous species that lived there. Oh, yeah. They did not want to
0: volunteer. So many spiders. So many snakes.
1: Right. And so the the colonists there were short on labor. Um, And again, prisons were so expensive to upkeep, so people were either killed or exiled instead of being sent to prison. And because of this they started transporting people down to Australia and there were 19 crimes that I learned from 19 crimes wine thank
0: you so much for your work I was gonna say that's familiar what's that from
1: (laughs) that could get you transported I think I have a bottle of 19 crimes upstairs we should drink it after this these are the crimes one grand larceny or the theft above the value of one shilling followed immediately by petty larceny theft under one shilling which someone cleverly said so if you stole something worth exactly one shilling like would you not go
0: what do you mean like i I want to go to australia i'm gonna steal one shilling's worth
1: no so the first crime was grand larceny which Uh is theft which was defined as theft of an item of worth more than one shilling. And then the second crime was petty larceny, which is the theft of something worth less than one shilling. Oh, so what if you stole something
0: that was worth exactly, exactly one, one shilling?
1: shilling? <laughs> Just got away. This is time. why you got
0: to include the like less than or equal to it's, symbol. It's in true. Your, it's true. In your mathematical equation. It's true. Third,
1: buying or receiving stolen goods, jewels, and plates. So if someone gave you something that they stole and then, they, then an informant found it, you could still... Transported. Yeah. What if you
0: didn't know? Be
1: transported. That's not fair. I guess it depends on how how good your lawyer
0: is. I don't know. What if someone like did reverse pickpocketing? Like they were mad at you and they wanted to get you sent to Australia, so they just like walked past you and put some stolen jewels in your pocket. Totally plausible.
1: Stealing lead, iron, or copper, because against the industrial revolution and we need all of that, or buying or receiving stolen lead, iron, or copper. So you just shouldn't, you should just be very careful whenever you buy something that they did not steal it. This is my favorite one. Impersonating an Egyptian. I don't know why. I don't know Racism. why. Racism. Right, <laughs> but like blackface isn't on here. I
0: don't it's, just, it's interesting that this one stereotype, they're like, don't do it.
1: I don't know why it was a problem. I don't know if they had like a slew of Im- Egyptian impersonators that were committing crimes. So they were like, forget it. But that's one of them. Stealing from furnished lodgings, which essentially means stealing from somebody's a house. house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like if no one was living in it and you stole something, I don't think you're going to be transported. But if, you, if someone lived there and you stole it, it's done.
0: How do you steal from an empty house? Oh, there's like stuff left behind mm-hmm. but then isn't that like how much furniture has got to be in a house for it to be considered furnished, furnished?
1: i don't know I've, i i these, these are all so nuanced you know it was what 1770 <laughs> it was 1770 setting fire to underwood stealing letters this is a weird way of phrasing this stealing letters advancing the postage and secreting and secreting the money what that means is if you stole a letter, took the stamp, and then sold the stamp for money. You can't do that. <laughs> not for I don't think resale. you can steal the mail either, but they really didn't want you to resell the stamp.
0: Have you ever seen how on ketchup packets on the side it says not for resale? Like, yeah. who's doing that?
1: Well, I think they think that
0: people are taking them and then
1: taking them to their restaurant and like trying to sell the ketchup packets.
0: That's like a. Imagine, I'm just picturing someone like walking into Burger King and like stuff in their pockets. Right. No, that's. And what then walking about. over to their restaurant.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Assault with an intent to rob. I'm assuming assault with an attempt to kill was a death
0: penalty. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh-huh.
1: Um, st- I love this one: stealing fish from a pond or river stealing which, so no fishing no you could fish you need a permit to fish oh, right or there's like fishing okay. areas i think it's like you know the places that say no fishing uh-huh, you took uh-huh. a fish there australia you go how would they know
0: do they keep track if of they, the wa- fish if population saw, is, you do okay, okay this is a
1: snitching community <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing is going off with i don't snitches. know why my brain is not
0: working tonight
1: i also love this one stealing roots plants or trees
0: how are they getting the whole tree? I don't know. <laughs> Imagine someone like sneaking across a yard, like holding a giant tree and being like, "Hope no one sees me." You better get your Christmas
1: tree legally. Um, or destroying them. You also couldn't like chop them down for no reason. Oh, for, okay. Bigamy, which I get. Uh-huh. Assaulting, cutting, or burning clothes. Which like, why do they care? What if it's they, too long? What if it's your clothes? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it just meant, I think it's because like this is when everyone was hanging out their clothes to dry. So it was like, don't go up and vandalize other people's clothes.
0: Okay. It was more of a laundry situation. But also you got to cut fabric a lot when you're making clothes. I know.
1: I don't, I guess it's like, don't touch other people's clothes.
0: Yeah, but they don't say other people's. No, they don't. (laughs) They need to get better at their wording. They do.
1: Counterfeiting the copper coin. Uh Uh-huh. Makes sense. Clandestine marriage. (gasps) Do you know what that means? Like
0: secret marriage. Well, yeah. I know what cland- clandestine yeah, means, means. secret, secret
1: marriage. So you can't get married. No clandestine. <laughs> stealing a shroud out of a grave. They don't say anything else about stealing from a grave. Mm. It's like- grave
0: robbing's fine unless you take this one specific thing. Right.
1: Okay, I love this one. Waterman carrying too many passengers on the Thames if any of them drowned. <laughs> so if you were in a boat and there was an accident and people drowned and they decided that there was too many people on the boat off to australia you go
0: but if there's an accident no one dies no one dies it's fine
1: (laughs) it's totally fine
0: what if there's like only one person on the boat and somehow they crash and the person drowns and could they be like too many people and they're like but there were just two of us still too many or would they just not no, make that decision? No, yeah, that's no. I a dumb question.
1: Incorrigible rogues who broke out of prison and persons reprieved from capital punishment. So most of the time, if someone uh-huh. was avoided the death penalty, they would still be transported. Mm-hmm. Um, and imbuing naval stores, which just means stealing from the naval stores. If you stop okay. the Brits from building ships off to Australia. So... These convicts lived incredibly tough lives in Australia. Even small violations could result in up to a hundred lashes. The guards there were known to be very harsh, probably because they didn't like living in Australia. There's a great play I mentioned at the end of last week's episode. It's called Our Country's Good by Timberlake Wharton Baker. I love this play, and it's about a group of... 15 convicts and 15 guardsmen that are transported. And the play very cleverly has the same people play the convicts and the guards. Um, mm. So it's a it's like, it's like a comedy, but it's also a big political commentary uh, and a big thing for the guards, and it is that they also hate being in Australia. Um, so I'm sure some of this was like guards taking out their anger over being in this colony on the convicts. Most criminals acted as laborers or servants to the settlers during the day and all were locked in stockades at night. Convicts who attempted to escape were sent to more remote penal colonies, including Norfolk Norfolk Island, 600 miles east of Australia. This is very similar to the plot in Papillon when they try to escape (laughs) and they're sent to a far off place, which if you've not seen Papillon. Happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month. Go watch (laughs) Papillon.
0: (laughs) Don't try and tell me they're not. It's not a gay drama. No,
1: it is a gay drama. You can't convince me otherwise. Norfolk Island was considered to be the harshest place for a convict to be sent. One of the governors, Ralph Darling, commanded that, quote, every man should be worked in irons, that the example may deter others from the commission of crime to hold out Norfolk Island as a place of the extremest punishment short of death.
0: Hmm.
1: Keep in mind that those being transported here were convicted of non-violent crimes. Female convicts were usually assigned to a domestic service, quote-unquote troublesome female prisoners were sent to the female factory where they made rope and wool i don't like the name of that yeah, i don't know <laughs> many women would marry as quickly as possible once they got to the island as a form of like protection
0: yeah you align yourself with like a person a powerful person or rich- i don't know there weren't rich people but like you know yeah get you a guy to protect you yeah Martin
1: Cash, um, who was a famous convict um, and bush ranger, described how this would happen in 1828 in Sydney. He said, quote, any man wanting to marry one of the girls would apply. The girls were lined up at the factory and the man would drop a scarf or handkerchief at the feet of the woman of his choice. And if she picked it up, the marriage was virtually
0: immediate.
1: Like they just got married That's right nuts.
0: there. Love yeah. is blind. Who?
1: It's true. It's true. Take a page from their book. Large numbers of boy convicts between 9 and 18 were sent to Tasmania for more age-appropriate work. At a certain point, the government had transported too many convicts to look after, and thus they started a new policy known as assignment, which is similar to sharecroppers in America. Okay, It allowed farmers to petition for convicts to come work for them. This was a hit-or-miss assignment. Mm-hmm. Some treated their convicts well, and others brutalized them much like slaves in america by 1836 70 percent of convicts were working on assignment so instead of being held accountable by british officers they were at the mercy of the farmers and, and settlers that they worked for
0: mm-hmm.
1: not everyone qualified for assignment and the worst convicts considered the worst by the crimes that they committed and their own like personal actions were kept in government custody and put in what are, what were called iron gangs. Uh-huh. Iron gangs performed backbreaking work building canals and roads. Convicts with special skills would be treated much better. The, for example, bakers, tailors, blacksmiths, anyone with sort of a trade skill. Mhm. Um, Meanwhile, the colonists there lived a much more luxurious lifestyle with convicts as their domestic servants than they probably would have been able to afford in England. So someone who was lower class in England, Mm -hmm. if they made the trip down to Australia, could live there as an upper class citizen if they weren't there as a criminal. Convicts even developed their own tattoo industry there. This is how many people found out that their family members were convicts because they have some sort of evidence that they Mm -hmm. had like a convict tattoo. Convicts also had their own underground economy, which was illegal, but still happened. The Australia Asian Anti-Transportation League was established to oppose penal transportation to Australia. It had branches in Tasmania, Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, and New Zealand. In 1846, a two year suspension of transportation to Tasmania was imposed. Local colonial administrator William Dennison said, quote, it is not the intention that transportation should be resumed at the expiration of two years. However, this was an error by the imperial authorities. He meant to say that it won't be resumed in the same way it was before, but but it was going to resume. Um, And this led people to believe that it would stop um in tasmania's first partially elective legislative council supporters of the australia asian league for the abolition of transportation won all 16 seats up for election the council voted 16 to 4 to request queen victoria cease transportation to tasmania and norfolk island that same year, the Victorian gold rush began, leading to a period of extreme prosperity in the Australian colony as They discovered gold there, not wanting to send convicts to reap the benefits of this. The last convict ship arrived in 1853 um, in Tasmania, and the final convict ship of all of them arrived in, 16, in 1868. There are a number of notable convicts that were transported to Australia, architect Francis Greenway was told by his friends to plead guilty to forging a document after he went bankrupt. This was a bad idea. He was sent to Australia, some friends, (laughs) and the colonists soon discovered his skills as an architect. He built the government house and St. James's Church in Sydney. Mary Wade was one of the youngest ever convicts to be transported at the age of 11. She stole another girl's clothes and was sentenced to death by hanging. However, an issue relating to George III's health changed all women on death row's sentenced to transportation and Mary Wade ended up having 21 children in Australia. <gasps> she is considered to be one of Australia's founding mothers for the British Australians. Um, and at the time of her death, she had 300 descendants. And one of her descendants is former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd.
0: That's insane. Yeah, absolutely nuts. So she's a very
1: respected woman. Like nobody is out there being like, what a criminal. They're like, we love her. Thank you for your service to Australia.
0: <laughs> Populating. To, it. Thank
1: you for your service to our colony. John Hudson was the youngest convict ever sent to Australia. He was nine years old when he arrived, but was only eight years old when he was tried at the Old Bailey London Court on the 10th of December, 1783. He was sent to seven years transportation for his felony, which was a common sentence. Um, He worked as a chimney sweep and was found guilty of breaking and entering the (laughs) dwelling house of William Holdsworth in East Smithfield and stealing clothing. At his trial, he had no one to defend him and he spoke only 13 words. An eight-year-old chimney sweep. I know. So sad. John Kelly was sent to Tasmania for seven years for stealing two pigs. He is the father of Ned Kelly, an Australian bush ranger, outlaw, gang leader, and police murderer famous for wearing a suit of bulletproof armor in a shootout with the police. And this was in the 1800s. He had fashioned bulletproof armor. And today he is like a very famous, almost like Jesse James type character mm -hmm. for the Australians. Mary Bryant was arrested and transported for highway robbery. She is one of the first people to escape the penal colony with her husband and children by stealing a governor's boat and (gasps) sailing to Timor. Her family was eventually discovered and put on a boat back to Britain where all but her died. After Mm. spending one year in prison, she was then pardoned.
0: That's sad. It is
1: sad, but like a crazy story. This guy is just called Frank the Poet, and he wrote several poems about his time in Australia. His conviction is unknown, but his most famous poem is called A Convict's Store to Hell, which is very well known in Australia. Billy Blue was born in Jamaica, New York, and served in the British Army. He was accused of stealing raw sugar and transported. He became a boatman and ferried passengers across Sydney Harbour, where today Blue's Point is named after him. Ah, Only one convict... Oh, my ending point is that... A lot of the women convicts would, like, sew during their time on the boat um, because Mm -hmm. they had an eight-month trip with nothing to do. Um, The Raja quilt... Quarantine,
0: be like. Yeah.
1: The Raja quilt is named for the ship where women prisoners, like, were held. Um, And the materials for the quilt arrived in Hobart in 1841. And that quilt is now on display at the National Museum of Australia in Canberra. And I'm just going to read you the embroidery on it it says to the ladies of the convict ship committee this quilt worked by the convicts of the ship raja during their voyage to van Diemen's land is presented as the testimony of the gratitude with which they remember their exertions for their welfare while in england and during their passage and also as a proof that they have not neglected the ladies kind ad- admonitions of being industrious june 1841 Aww. All right. That is everything. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I'veBeenWondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us directly through the link in the bio of this episode and or consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've Been Wondering Podcast at gmail.com.
0: Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? So, what's like the real story of Pompeii? Ah! <laughs> that was the cutest response. Sarah just got so excited. I was hesitant to ask you about that because I feel like we've done a lot of history lately. I love
1: history. I have no problem with that.
0: (laughs) And disasters. I love disasters. (laughs) I
1: know that's that's a terrible thing to say.
0: Very far removed from when they happen. Yeah, Yeah. I know what you mean. No, I just... It's uh, not like when, like, an earthquake starts happening, you're like, yes! No, I just find when you
1: told me about earthquakes, I was, like, fascinated. I find natural Mm -hmm. disasters so interesting Mm -hmm. in terms of, like... Impact. Oh, my gosh. There's so much to (laughs) that. I really... I think I don't have the discipline to be an anthropologist or a historian. I think there's too much that I don't care Mm -hmm. about for me to do it. But when I find a topic in those areas that I am interested in, I, like, want to do a deep dive, as Mm -hmm. we know, from Titanic. So, I'm jazzed. (laughs) Okay. My topic's a a little slash very different. Jane. (laughs) Okay. You know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? So... With all the riots that are going on, something that's been brought up a lot is the Black Panthers and their misrepresentation in U.S. history in terms of how they are taught. Because I know personally when I was taught about, taught about the Black Panthers, it was very much that they were like this violent group. Yeah. When so much of what they
0: did was nonviolent. Mm-hmm. So I want you to tell me more about the Black Panthers. Sure. I don't know. I, I feel like I have a similar amount of knowledge than as you do. Great. So. We're going to
1: take some time to educate ourselves. Yeah. All right, that's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering.